0: This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And
1: I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Another very busy week on the corporate front, and certainly when it came to news out of Washington,
0: Jason. Absolutely. We had trade. We had impeachment. We had more details about how you might need to hire (laughs) mercenaries to smuggle yourself out in a box if you you know don't think you're going to get a fair trial in japan
1: got to say that's one of my favorite stories we really get into the details of how carlos gohn his great escape from tokyo and we also get into because i feel like this story has gotten hidden about the legal implications and the legal issues still facing mr gohn
0: plus you mentioned trade and impeachment and politics mm-hmm. we caught up with both blackstone's steve schwartzman he was in the room when the trade deal was signed, and you caught up with New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy about the state of the state and the state of politics.
1: We did indeed. Plus, Apollo's greed. It is this week's cover story. It's a story that really hasn't been told, but our team, they got the interview with
0: Leon Black. First, the big story of the week.
2: So China has made substantial and enforceable commitments regarding the protection of American ideas, trade secrets, patents, and trademarks. China has also pledged firm action to confront pirated and counterfeit goods, which is a big problem for many of the people in the room.
0: And that was President Trump after the U.S. and China signed that phase one of the trade deal. A lot of pomp and circumstance down in Washington, a full room. The president name checking a lot of his friends there in the audience.
1: Let's get more on the economics of the trade deal. Let's bring in Sean Donnan in D.C. with his story on how Now comes the hard part. After the handshake, we've seen the photo ops. This is the tough part. Why is it so hard, Sean?
3: President Trump is not the first president to make a deal with China. In fact, he referenced that when he was signing this, saying that he was writing the wrongs of the past, writing the issues that his predecessors had not addressed in terms of dealing with China. President Clinton, of course, brought China into the WTO. George W. Bush had his own dealings with China. So did Barack Obama, who not only had a, a constant economic dialogue with China, but also was looking for his own trade deals to try and deal with the threat of China that was the Trans-Pacific Partnership. The common thread through all of this has been that the consensus here in Washington, certainly, is that China just hasn't lived up to its promises in these past deals. And that's where the China moment is for Donald Trump right now. He's got his deal. Now will China live up to it? And so what does
0: enforcement look like, Sean? What does it look like on the ground? And where does the rubber meet the road here?
3: Right. So the thing that uh, the administration says is very different about this deal and the reason they think they can get China to live up to its commitments is this enforcement mechanism that's in there. Essentially, it sets the stage for if uh, the U.S. has any complaints or any inkling that China isn't living up to the deal. There's this kind of 90-day process of consultations at the end of which you can whack the Chinese with tariffs if you choose to. That's, uh, that's good. Uh, that seems to be a, a, a mechanism that could work. Uh, but it's also an unwanted of the kind of global system that was set up in the 1990s, and that's essentially the World Trade Organization, which was set up to be a neutral arbiter in disputes like this. And the Trump administration is just going around that. And that has big uh, consequences for everyone else in the world, because it means that that's going to reduce the credibility of the WTO and its ability to keep the peace in global trade uh, at a time when the Trump administration is already uh, undermining it by by uh, failing to appoint or blocking the appointment of, of of new judges. So there's big consequences for not just the U.S. and China in terms of trying to get uh, China to live up to this deal, but also for the rest of the world and global trade. You know, I mean, the, the whole idea of the WTO is to avoid trade wars. Donald Trump's gone down the path of trade wars. Uh, and now he's promising more trade wars to to try and enforce deals, essentially, if that's right. uh, if, if that becomes the issue.
0: And that's Sean Donnan, senior trade reporter for Bloomberg. Carol, let's turn now from trade to the 2020 presidential campaign.
1: Here's Josh Green with a story on the terminal and online on how Bernie Sanders is poised for an upset. You know, Josh, it does seem Bernie is out there to win this one. What's different about the 2016 presidential race and his run to get the nomination versus today? And can he win?
4: Bernie Sanders, who was all but forgotten about three months after he suffered a heart attack, is in first place in the race in Iowa. And yet, uh, I still think there's a sense in Washington and on Wall Street that there's no way Bernie can possibly win. Uh, So what I do in the magazine this week is do a deep dive into Sanders and look at what is different about his race this time around. Um, The main thing is, he's running to win. Uh, Last time around, when he was running against Hillary Clinton, he was in the race, I think, more to make a point. But the key takeaway here is that Bernie is playing to win and he is actually in position to be able to do so.
0: And Josh, tell us about that Warren
4: v. Sanders battle that is shaping up. While I was out there in Iowa, Politico reported that Bernie's campaign uh, had been uh, giving its surrogates talking points, uh, telling them uh, to tell voters to attack Elizabeth Warren as an elitist and somebody who couldn't unify the party and beat Donald Trump. Uh, that, that is a harsh attack from someone supposed to be an ally. The story went public, and it looks like, in retaliation, Warren's camp leaked that in a, in, in a private meeting between the two of them, at the beginning of this cycle, Sanders had said to Warren, I don't think a woman can win this race. Now, none of this was ever spoken of. It only came to light a few days before this past weekend's debate. And it set off a firestorm, as you might expect, with the political press out there uh, putting pressure on Warren to say, you know, is this true? Uh, Well, after about a day of being quiet, Warren put out a public statement. It was like pouring gasoline on a fire.
1: Josh, thanks so much. That's Bloomberg's Josh Green. He's been following the comings and goings of the presidential hopefuls, certainly the Democrats. Uh, And I think this one's an interesting, he focused, remember last year, Josh focused on Elizabeth Warren, that great story. But it's interesting to see how there's a lot of attention and for good reason being paid to Bernie Sanders.
0: Well, and the clash between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren seems to be one of the most compelling storylines out there right now. You know, I feel like this Carlos Ghosn story, Carol, every time we think, wow, that's the most interesting thing I've heard, or what a twist, no, or not. what a great detail. No, it's not. It is not. <laughs> uh, and thanks to some stellar reporting from Matt Campbell, there's just a constant stream of new information. Uh, he led a team that put together a really nice pizzas in this week's magazine on the Bloomberg Terminal and on Bloomberg.com today. Matt joins us on the phone from Beirut, he's still on the ground, on the Gone story and Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week, is here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Matt, I, I got to ask you, especially since you have the perspective of really being in this story, what's the thing in this story about the escape itself that you really just zero in on as the, as Carol Master would say, "Whoa" moment? <laughs>
5: Well, I, I think there's there's quite a lot uh, to to say wow about in this story. I, I'm interested in in all the scenarios that were examined to get uh, Carlos Ghosn out of out of Japan. Uh, there's some discussion of that in this piece which was published. Uh, notably, uh, there was some discussion of actually buying a cargo ship uh, and sneaking him onto it, though that was uh, rejected as too complicated. And, and in the end, uh, they did get to this very dramatic uh, private jet escape that we now know a little bit more about
2: which i you know this to me um and the wonder of this story it's like we all these little dribs and drabs that have come out over the last week and change actually ever since the story really broke at the beginning of the year you know we've all been captivated by part of what made this be um i think uh, this epic part three of this story that um matt's been kind of shepherding Is this inside the plan of of how to get how to get somebody out of a country how to extract someone and you know it's a very movie esque but you know the reason it can be movie esque is because of like real reporting Uh, and and Matt can you kind of walk us through how the story opens.
5: Well, so the story opens with uh, a a security contractor in Asia, uh, someone who does this kind of thing, escorting VIPs, protecting cargoes. He gets a call a few months ago from someone he knows uh, who is looking to hire for a job in Japan, uh, looking particularly to escort someone out of the country and and looking for operatives uh, with Asian, East Asian faces particularly. And and, uh, the security contractor, was sort of noncommittal and, and no one really came to mind and he never really thought of it again. So of course, uh, he saw the news along with the rest of the world on, uh, on New Year's Eve. And that's when you
2: connect the dots and, and, uh, what, you know, one of the things that I've been kind of captivated by in this is like, obviously Carlos Ghosn had the means to actually, you know, fund something like this, but what, what kind of, what would it go down for? Like what, what does the service actually cost someone?
5: Well, uh, that's, uh, that's a, a very good question. Uh, one estimate that I've heard uh, was $15 million, uh, which uh, when I first heard it sounded insanely high. Uh, but uh, the person who, who was providing that estimate to me then, then took me through the math. And, and one thing that you have to add at every point in that calculation is, uh, for lack of a better term, a risk premium. Uh, right. This is flagrantly illegal. Uh, everyone involved could be exposed to arrest, obviously. Uh, and people need to be compensated for that kind of risk-taking.
1: Yeah, and when you say everyone, we've actually got some names. You've got a Michael Taylor, and then you've got a buddy of Michael Taylor. I mean, we've got names on the individuals who are believed to have helped Carlos Ghosn uh, get out of Japan.
5: That's right. So far, just two names. Um, Michael Taylor being the, the leader of the group, a very uh, interesting guy with a somewhat checkered history. Uh, former Green Beret, uh, very experienced uh, Special Forces operator, ended up in the private security business, uh, but actually ended up going to jail uh, in uh, the mid-2010s over uh, federal charges to do with a bri- allegedly bribing his way uh, to a contract in Afghanistan. So really someone uh, who's operated in, in some gray areas and and. pulled off this amazing coup on behalf of carlos gong
2: so Matt, i I mentioned earlier that this is sort of a the part three in the magazine of of a carlos gong trilogy that you've um basically been steering from the moment uh you know that uh japanese officials basically arrested him on a tarmac uh, a year and change ago um so what what have you learned and and what is what is this escape what you know put put it all in context what what does it mean For uh, for people to know,
5: well, I think the the big thing here is that he has now turned the tables. Over the last year, uh, he seemed pretty helpless. Uh, This uh, real titan of business, this very respected corporate figure, uh, was suddenly just completely at the mercy of the Japanese justice system, and and none of all the none of the advantages he had—money, connections, access to media, whatever. It didn't seem to count for anything, and and it was uh, you know really a tale of a guy, kind of alone, kind of abandoned, and, and facing a, a pretty grim fate. Uh, that's now completely changed. Uh, he has gotten out of uh, the threat of being sent to a Japanese prison, though he's certainly not out of the woods yet, as as we discuss in the story.
0: What right and and I want to end on that note, Matt. If we can, I mean, not out of the woods because he's. Essentially, without overstating it, sort of a different type of prisoner at this point. By by some accounts, he he's not free to go in in
5: any sense, right? Well, he is Jason. Uh, certainly free to, to live uh, here in Lebanon, right? Uh, at, at least uh, as far as we know, there there is a judicial proceeding that is going to run its course here, uh, but it's very unlikely he will be extradited. So he is he's fine to be here for now. Uh, He certainly can't travel anywhere except uh, perhaps to France, where he's also a citizen. Uh, And the other thing is, you know, his reputation has not yet been rehabilitated. And and I think if he uh, entertains thoughts of a comeback, which which he very well might, there's a long way to go to that.
1: And I'm just going to say, as you so rightfully include in your story, it's another case of the winner-take-all in the game of 21st century capitalism. If you've got money and means, you can get yourself out, Matt, just quickly.
5: Indeed. Yeah. Well, it, uh, it turns out that, uh, you know, we were very surprised in Japan that he couldn't beat the system, but uh, he was able to exit the system, which is not something that, that most criminals have <laughs> It's system. The,
2: the other option, go
5: yeah. way outside the box. If, if
0: you can't beat the system, just change <laughs> well, the system altogether. Go All in right. a
5: box
1: to go way outside <laughs> yeah, the box. exactly.
0: exactly. you got to get in the box.
1: That's Bloomberg reporter Matthew Campbell and Businessweek editor-in-chief Joel Weber. Jason, this story just gets more and more interesting, and I've got to take uh, my hat off to our team here at Bloomberg, who has done great investigative journalism and is really getting to the details, the names of the individuals behind that great escape of Carlos Ghosn and how it all came down. It is now approximately three weeks since Carlos Ghosn, the ousted head of Nissan and Renault, escaped from Japan. And while we're all obsessed, Jason, easily with the Hollywood-like feel of this story, real story, there are still something we can't forget. And that's the legal side of this story. A lot of questions still.
0: Absolutely. And we've talked a lot about, as you say, the escape, the dramatic, you know, sort of in the box, literally, like getting to Lebanon. But what happens from here from a legal perspective That's what we really want to dig into now. Greg Farrell is here with us. He has unpacked this in a way that few have and is here to provide some historical perspective.
6: As you look at this, what are the key legal issues here? The case against Gone is not like a lot of cases brought against CEOs in the United States where it's a clear case of either insider trading or accounting fraud in order to goose up earnings so that you can get your bonus – the Enron stuff mm-hmm. that we all remember from 15, 20 years ago. The case against Ghosn, uh is unusual insofar as it's a um, – he's been accused of helping himself to more money than he deserved or somehow finagling a way to get the board to approve or unbeknownst to the board even bigger pay packages than uh, he was entitled to, which is – Uncommon; It's seen rarely here. Basically, to my mind, it brought back the case against former Tyco CEO Dennis Kozlowski and his CFO brought not by the federal government but by the Manhattan District Attorney Bob Morgenthau back in the uh, 04, 05 era. And that was kind of a messy case. It was not clear. They went after him on books and records issues, et cetera. But it did not have that clear resonance that an accounting fraud, a securities fraud case has. Tyco shareholders were not really burned by this. Yes, Kozlowski helped himself to more money than you know, the board had approved. But unlike Enron, unlike HealthSouth, unlike some of these other WorldCom, right. Tyco was a real profitable company and his shareholders were doing well. So this falls into that category. Goen was accused of helping himself to more than he deserved and basically parleying his position to enrich himself. Another thing that was missing from, you know, Morgenthau's case against Tyco, but clearly present here is the plan – and Carlos Ghosn referred to this in his press conference last week – to basically fold Nissan into a wider right. global automotive right. group that would basically you know, uh, remove the essential Japanese element from it or make it less of a Japanese champion brand that had been. and you know i think he's actually got a point there that this is something that didn't go over well
1: but it was in the works
6: it was in the works like. it was in the works it's more than a coincidence i think that this very aggressive regulatory legal action and prosecution of going took place at a time when nissan was in fact you know drifting towards uh, becoming an international brand and less of a japanese brand
1: what's interesting i want to go back to what you said of you know perhaps Carlos Ghosn helping himself to more than he was allowed. Is that a simple legal case to figure out? In other words, do you just go back to the employment contracts and here's what they say, you weren't allowed to have this house or so on and so forth? Or when it comes to this kind of things, because I could certainly see with a board that's really happy with its CEO and Carlos Ghosn was lauded as this incredible auto executive uh, in the industry and really globally as an executive. And I do wonder whether it's like, oh, yeah, we like him. Yeah, he can have that or he can do this. Like, How do you go about legally proving it? What's required?
6: Uh, Is there a lot of wiggle room? Cal, you've made a a very good point here. And that is he was a superstar CEO by the time this all unfolded a little more than a year ago. And as he pointed out in his press conference last week, uh, somewhere near 20 books have been written for case studies in business schools about his phenomenal success. We would
1: interview him saying what a great executive. Everyone respects him.
6: But this is at the far end of a 20-year reign. Certainly, when you have that much success over a period of time, uh, there are certain realities that happen we 've seen it here in the u s with very powerful mm-hmm. uh, you know uh, CEOs who develop sort of a there 's a hero worship mm-hmm. and after a while, technically, all you know boards of directors are independent, but over a particular twenty year period where you know new board members come on, et cetera after a while. The board becomes, if not a wholly owned subsidiary, far less of an independent watchdog right. than what you know shareholder activists would would like us to have. They do become. There becomes a very comfortable relationship between the board and the CEO because everybody's doing well. Why rock the boat? And in that gray area is um, whether or not you know uh, Ghosn is entitled to this. Uh, the board. You know, So there would be different claims if this ever went to trial that the board was not aware that he right. was paying himself that. Right. Goan could say, no, I, I told them this or they knew that or we had a discussion at the end of the last board meeting where I said I'd be interested in this. Right, and, the money went through yeah. and somebody right. uh, okayed it, Yes, right? exactly, exactly. It was a transaction. And there are lawyers for every board meeting and board minutes, et cetera. So right. these are not like secret meetings that happen and people forget. Right. Um, so you know that is a very gray area. And that's Greg
0: Farrell, one of the legal eagles here at Bloomberg. And what what I loved about his conversation was he put it in context, historical context. He's followed everything from Enron to Tycho. And those connections that he made to mm-hmm. the Dennis Kozlowski story, I thought were fascinating.
1: I also think it was funny that in starting to talk with him, he's like, wait, I had to remember that there were charges. What were the charges exactly. specifically against Carlos Ghosn? So he gets into the particulars. So obviously a story that continues to evolve. It isn't over, as you said. Even if you don't know Apollo Management, you probably know some of the company's targets, right, Jason? We're talking about Harris Casinos, Claire's Jewelry Stores, Linen and Things. This brings us to the cover story this week.
0: It does, and it's really an unbelievable story that's never been told. Leon Black, one mm-hmm. of the key figures in the world of finance, in the world of philanthropy, and certainly in the world of private equity, Caleb Melby and Heather Pearlberg wrote the story. Caleb's here with us in New York City. Uh, Leon Black, where to begin? Where did you begin?
7: <laughs> <laughs> indeed, yeah, Heather and i uh it took us months to to put this together um, and we approached it in the summer being like here 's this guy he was in the news at the time uh because of his uh, affiliations uh, with jeffrey epstein and and like his name was in headlines everywhere and it was suddenly of much broader interest to a much broader group of people and we were like do people know who he is like what his story is the fact that he's been at like all the key junctures in like american financial history for like half a century um so we went and you know we started talking to people all the way back to the 1970s about leon his story how he came to be One of the most powerful and ruthless people in American finance. And we do
1: want to take that step back. I mean, who is he today? I mean, he is, when it comes to private equity and investors, I mean, big deal, but someone who's been very quiet.
7: Yes. Yeah. He is uh in private equity, there's there's some people who you can think of as kind of ambassadors for for that line of work, right? Probably Steve Schwartzman, chief chief among them. Leon Black has not shouldered that responsibility to tell the industry's story or anything like that. He's uh very adverse uh to the press, and we learned about why uh, when we talked to him, but yeah, uh, Apollo Global Management now has three hundred and twenty billion dollars under management uh, that 's a figure that 's grown sixfold in the last decade. He wants to get it up to six hundred in the decade after this one, and he 's worth almost ten billion dollars now he 's chairman of the Museum of modern art
1: which in in I feel like New York society n- culture, if you want to be the head of a cultural institution in the world. That's a big one. That's a coveted
7: position. Yeah. I, I've kind of been thinking about it as, like, the Iron Throne for yeah. Game of Thrones fans. For, <laughs> for like, the royal houses of Manhattan, for sure. Um, and, and, yeah, mostly he's done that, yeah, much less in the public eye than right. his contemporaries. Um, and... Uh, Apollo also has a reputation across the street, across the, the realm of finance, for for playing a harder ball than some of his contemporaries as well.
0: And so let's talk about some of those junctures going back through history for for Leon Black, and and one of the most notable uh, is his time at Drexel Burnham Lambert uh, at the foot, at the side, uh, however you want to characterize it, of Michael Milken. You know, no. a definitive time mm-hmm. in American finance, as you say. Remind us why Drexel is so important.
7: <laughs> well. Uh, Yeah. He he learned under Michael Milken and uh, he also served as banker to some of the most important corporate writers of the 1980s. He was banking for Henry Kravis. He was banking for Carl Icahn who would become something of a mentor. They'd go on vacations together, play poker together. Um, And uh, of course uh, – Drexel is one of the most famous, uh, like, low points you can probably say in Wall Street financial history, with uh, the trial of Michael Milken, its bankruptcy, and everything else. Um, but also, <laughs> with time heals all wounds, Michael Milken, Leon Black, a lot of these guys—they're now, you know, they're—that's all in the past, and and they've risen to become kind of like lord and master of of Wall Street today. And
0: the Drexel part of the story I think is really important because its success in essentially creating the junk bond, obviously, and the junk bond market is critical for what comes next and what comes next for Leon Black. But also, and you alluded to this, the dissolution of Drexel, the bankruptcy, makes Apollo possible.
7: Absolutely. So when Leon uh, first strikes out on his own right around 1990, it's all with like – Drexel survivors, essentially, and uh, and at the same time, there's this credit crunch. Uh, in the economy. And all of the companies uh, that had been bought or were sitting on piles of high-yield debt uh, were now in trouble. And a lot of them, a lot of that dish debt was issued by Drexel, sometimes by Leon himself. He knows which are the good companies, which are the bad companies, <laughs> right. and now all of a sudden, they're all struggling, and the game is no longer mergers, acquisitions, LBOs. It's about buying that distressed debt and using it to maneuver to take over these companies. And he's had a front-row seat as that debt was being issued and now he forms what's actually called line advisors at first but then later becomes Apollo uh, to to go in working with backing from Credit Lyonnais, a French bank, uh, to really start to rifle through these distressed companies and he – Apollo's really big value add is that they're going for the ones that are so distressed that his competitors, your Kravis's, your icons are not touching them. And he's going in there and he and his team are willing to, you know, go through the restructuring battles, go through the bankruptcy battles uh, to try to make a profit off these companies. And I
1: do wonder too, right, he's been at the right place at the right time and kind of understanding the marketplace. Um, But I also do wonder, Caleb, that, you know, he has kind of done a service in terms of going after some of those companies that maybe some of the other private equity firms Weren't interested in.
7: Sure, yeah, yeah. He would he would argue that um, they are the. The, tr- the truest value investors in private equity right that, that, the way they think about value is you find a distressed situation that you are uniquely capable of heading into and turning around and that 's going to lower your downside risk because you're buying it for so cheap and hopefully also boosting your chances of return later on
0: and one of the things that Apollo has notably done and with you know full permission from their investors is they have had the ability to invest all around a company in many ways not yes. just buying equity not just doing sort of a plain vanilla leverage buyout but they're buying credit often
7: they find themselves at different times on different sides of a deal, right? Absolutely, and that's true for Apollo itself, and it's true for Leon as a person too. So, 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 yeah, he was he worked with companies and executives uh, while he was issuing the debt at Drexel, then then at Apollo buying into those companies as you say multiple different ways through equity, through debt, um, and then he continues to run into the same people all throughout the next few decades. Um, he's sometimes competing as he would later do with Icon for control of a company or partnering with them.
1: So, okay. I think what's interesting about this story, there's so much because you do go into family history and and so on. What I also think is just novel is that you actually sat down. You guys sat down and talked with Leon Black. This is someone who doesn't give interviews. Tell us a little bit about the experience and and what you got from
7: him. Yeah. uh, So uh, uh, Heather and I got to go sit down uh, with Leon at his office at uh, 9 West 57th Street. Uh, something that struck me, it's kind of kind of a joke in financial journalism, knockout views of Central Park is a phrase that gets dropped into a lot of stories. <laughs> this was the most uh, stunning view of Central Park I have ever seen, like the whole park splayed out like a bocce ball court right in front of you, yes. truly the most amazing um, uh, views I've seen in a Wall Street office uh, reporting here. But he, um, uh, he was incredibly clever, uh, funny, very obviously intelligent. Um, and was very interested in uh, trying to communicate to us that he, he felt his company uh, was misunderstood. That's the
1: first line of um, your story. Yes, yeah. Which is exactly what you said, that the most feared man in the most aggressive realm of finance, he wants to know why he's been misunderstood. Right.
7: Um, and, and there's a few things at play there. One, it, it, we, we, we deal with this idea of risk and who bears risk in any private equity deal and who bears risk in, in a Leon Black deal specifically. And he makes a very good point that, well, Claire's or linens and things or whatever may be a distressed asset that appears risky. Of course, the way uh, Apollo goes about it does not mean Apollo itself or Apollo's investors are bearing a lot of risk, right? You put a little equity in, you get a lot of debt, shift, right. shift, shift that that risk to, to your creditors, and then, of course, to the, the target company uh, itself. Um, and and we, we came with a lot of questions, uh, uh, but that was the thing that really, really animated him and, and uh, really seemed to uh, both excite and aggravate him in a way that I found surprising. The notion of risk and the misunderstanding Understanding? Yeah, yeah, the misunderstanding of uh, of him and mm-hmm. his company, and, and 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 yeah, as we said, a, a part of that is because he has not proactively told his story in a way that a lot of his contemporaries do. And and, and uh, when I was talking to other people around the company, they'll say, "Okay, Caesar's cas- casinos, something like that." There's only one Apollo, and there's like you know, <laughs> two dozen creditors who who all hate how Apollo's going about their line of work there, right? So, so they feel like there's There's a a – a definitional, like numeric sort of imbalance in how how their story gets told.
1: That's Caleb Melby. He and Heather Perlberg did this cover story, Jason. And what's wonderful about it is uh, they spent a long time on it. There's so many details about the man, his background, his family, uh, and really how he got to where he is today. And what's fascinating too is, and we talked about it with Caleb, is that they actually sat down with Leon Black. And this is not something that Mr. Black does often.
0: The insights that they got into him, into the firm. Into the implications of the business, both there at Apollo and in the broader private equity world, totally fascinating. We should mention you can get all of our conversation with Caleb Melby he takes you even deeper into the story. It's our Business Week Extra podcast this week, so download that wherever you get your podcast. I got a chance to catch up with Steve Schwartzman. He is, of course, the co-founder, the chairman and the CEO of the Blackstone Group, a confidant of President Trump and of President Xi. He played a little bit of a shuttle diplomacy role throughout these long trade negotiations. He was in the White House for the signing. Here's what he had to say.
8: This got to be a deal uh, basically uh, because it's been going on uh, for three years uh, since we really started this. Uh, It was a two days before Davos three years ago. Uh, and uh, so so we've had a lot of uh, near misses, uh, uh, a little bit of success, and now a lot of success. Uh, and I think it takes a while for each country uh, to figure out uh, what it really wants to get out of a trade agreement, uh, what it wants to get out of the, the, the compliance, um, uh, the opening of its markets, uh, and for China, uh, you have to remember uh, that the U.S. and China, other than the World Trade Organization uh, deal in 2001, fundamentally uh, hasn't had a trade agreement uh, since the 1940s. So what's been achieved uh, is very, very significant. Uh, the two countries want to work together. Uh, that's, that's a huge change. Uh, the tariffs are starting to be uh, reversed. Uh, they're, uh, there are major purchases of things of not just agriculture but other things. Uh, intellectual property uh, is has been reversed uh, separately. Uh, the conversations uh, in December regarding fentanyl, which is killing uh, over 50,000 Americans a year, and China has really made huge strides uh, to cut off the supply of fentanyl, right. and, and so. What, what we're seeing is are countries that are competitive uh, but also have this huge relationship, trade-wise. Together, these two countries, hard to believe, uh, the way you, depending upon how you calculate it, have between 35 and 40 percent of the world's economy just in two countries. Right. So the idea of decoupling uh, and everybody going their own way on virtually everything is, is, is impractical and, and it's also not good for the world economy. Right. So, so what the two countries have done now is figure out where they can start the dialogue, how they can implement it, uh, and it's a very positive uh, feeling. This wasn't a grudging uh, type of deal that's been entered into.
0: Alright, so Steve, obviously you've been playing a bit of a role of a statesman going back and forth between these two leaders that you know very well. At the end of the day, you're a businessman, you're an investor. What does this do for you as a businessman, as an investor sitting at Blackstone? Does it amplify, does it accelerate investments that you may be making around the world and specifically in China?
8: Well, what it does is it it provides a baseline uh, of a a better world economy. And I I think you're seeing in the uh, markets uh, uh, over the last sort of whatever you want to measure, uh, you know, the last year, uh, certainly the last few months, uh, as this agreement's come together, uh, it's not the only reason for uh, strong markets, uh, but it's it's the business community globally uh, d- telling you that things are better now uh, in terms of prospects than they were before this agreement uh, was was entered into.
0: And so, when you think about Phase Two, and we'll see when that gets started, what's the most important thing for you to see as an investor and a business person?
8: Well, I think uh, th- Phase Two will cover a number of other things, uh, which, which which are uh, important. Uh, you know, things that that you know have not been resolved. There's some issues, you know, regarding uh, uh, cyber and uh, non tariff uh, uh, trade. Uh, uh, restrictions uh, and, and, and also tariffs themselves have not been fully uh, negotiated out uh, in, in terms of where you go when these things um, uh, all unwind assuming you have a successful uh, phase two and there are other issues as well uh, and, and so what's important as a business person uh, is to know that there's positive momentum there are countries who realize that even though they may be rivals in certain areas that in the commercial area as much cooperation on as fair a basis as you can do is better uh, than, than countries just sort of breaking apart, which is, which is deleterious uh, for world trade and for business.
0: And that's my conversation with Steve Schwartzman there on the White House lawn. Interesting, of course, he is a friend and confidant of the president. He's obviously very pro this deal. He worked on it. uh, But interesting to see what the implications are for his day job, you know, running the world's biggest alternative investment manager.
1: I got to say, it was just interesting to see who was all in that room in the White House as that trade deal was signed. A very telling story. It is the second most popular dating app in the U.S. It's supposed to offer women a better option, but does it?
0: We're talking about Bumble. It's the subject of a feature in the magazine this week. Claire Suttoth wrote it, and it is quite a tale. She's here with us in New York City. All right, where to begin? (laughs) I guess let's begin with what is Bumble?
9: Bumble is a dating app. Um, It is also a networking app. They have like a platonic version and a professional networking version, but essentially, you know, you swipe right or left, if you like people. And if you do, you go on a date. You can message them. Um, But its defining feature that it was founded with is that only women can message men first. So if you swipe right on a man and he swipes on you, the woman, it's on her to message him. Supposedly, this is empowering. This allows women to guide the conversation. Um, But the issue is there's not really any evidence that it actually is empowering or that it's doing what it claims, which is supposed to be Flipping the script, you know, giving right. women more power in relationships.
1: Right. And I feel like she's really on a mission to kind of get rid of harassment of women on a dating website and, and you know, maybe big – more broadly like on social media, right? There's a mission.
0: And the she we are talking oh, about yes, is me. Whitney Wolfe Heard. <laughs> she you. came from Tinder. I mean, which is an an yes. important sort of yeah. historical note, right? She's so a
9: co-founder, us, right? Yeah. yeah. So Bumble has a, like an amazing origin story, which is um, it's founded by this woman named Whitney Wolfe Heard, who, when she was twenty three, she along with some other people co-founded Tinder. She was its first vice president of marketing. She sort of engineered Tinder's like initial explosive app, especially on college campuses. Um, she sued Tinder for sexual harassment. In 2014, um, there was an undisclosed settlement, no admission of wrongdoing. Um, but you know, she received a lot of harassment online during all of this. You know, people calling her names, death threats, etc. So when she founded Bumble, she really wanted to combat harassment online and just make a place on the internet that's safer for women. And is she?
1: I mean, that's the really the big question I feel like you're trying to get to. Yeah. And you look at the culture of the company because there's been concerns about that and whether or not she's making a difference on, on social media.
9: Yeah. And this story, I will say, took me a long time to report because initially when – When someone tells you, you know, we're making the internet safer for women, we have all of these policies in place, you think, okay. Here's the data. (laughs) That sounds great. You know, they've banned hate speech. Um, Women have to message men first, so it's harder for men to, in theory anyway, harass women, um, at least out of the blue. Then the more that I looked into it and I would ask for proof, I couldn't actually get them to provide me with any... Explanation for how this worked. Eventually, at one point, um, they did tell me their abuse rate, which is the number of people who are kicked off the app for violating these hate speech and harassment rules, is 7 to 8%, but it's been the same throughout the entire time. So Mm -hmm. they've instituted these policies. And not much is really changing.
0: And there's no real benchmark for that, right? Because we don't know what that rate is at other dating sites.
9: Right, exactly. And, you know, I talked to um, a couple dating sites off the record and they said, well, we don't know how you can compare us because we all have different terms of service agreements right. and different user bases and that sort of thing, which was their explanation. Only complicates but, it. <laughs> but the reason why I started asking these questions is because former employees were telling me, well, Bumble doesn't actually check to see if anything that it does Makes much of a difference. And once I heard that from many people, I started to sort of rethink okay, so what does it mean? You know, one of the things that Bumble does is it bans shirtless selfies. Right. So their explanation for why they ban shirtless selfies is that 86% of the accounts that are reported for bad behavior have these shirtless selfies mm. in them. So they ban them, but you could just upload a different picture there's no real, I mean, how does that mean women are safer just because you can't take your shirt off in a photo anymore? So they don't have any explanation for how this actually benefits anyone.
0: I want to go back to the culture of the company because it in part rests and part of the narrative rests on where the company sits sort of organizationally. It's part of a a larger company now. Mm -hmm. And in fact, uh, Whitney Wolfe has essentially ascended to, to an even higher position. Tell us about the company and the parent company.
9: Yeah. So if you've heard anything about Bumble, you you might know its origin story. But it actually, from the very beginning, has been um, part of a larger company, originally called Badoo. In June, there was a structure change, and now it's called Magic Lab. Um, but Badoo is a London-based dating app that runs primarily, I think, in Europe and Latin America. Bumble was started sort of after the fact and has always been built by Badoo Engineers in London and then marketed and designed by Herd and Wolf Heard and her team of women in Austin. So it's this weird mix of, you know, it's a scrappy startup, but it's also not, and Right. And Badu was run by a Russian billionaire. Right. There's so
1: many fun facets. Yeah, and Badu
9: has its own culture problems. There was a great Forbes article a few months ago about um, allegations of sexual harassment over there and just the the lack of um, women's ability to advance the Mm -hmm. workplace at Badu. And yet here is Bumble, this, like, you know, beacon of equality.
1: Claire, when you set out to do this story, I mean, part of it sounds like you wanted to know a little bit more about this person and the, and the identity behind Bumble. I mean, t- tell us about your mission, kind of what you, what you hope to get out of it and what do you think you ultimately got out of yeah. it. Yeah.
9: I mean, so I came to this story because I had read all of the great press about Bumble and I thought, wow, they are doing so many great things. And let's take a look at this company because if we can figure out what Bumble is doing – we can figure out you know, what other companies should be doing or right. how they sh- should be changing their mission. But the more that I looked into it, the more I realized these problems are really complex. I talked to this woman who is um, an expert on trying to eradicate mm-hmm. hate speech. And she talked about working with Facebook. And there were specific terms that Facebook wanted to make sure that people couldn't say, right. derogatory. But also some of those same terms People throw around at each other in a sort of endearing kind of way. Right. And so if you decide to scrub that word entirely from Facebook, you are capturing like 80% of the posts that use it in sort of a nice way. Right. Nice, but whatever. Right. Um, So non threatening. Non threatening, jokey kind of way, friend to friend. And so what she was saying is that, you know, to do this is much harder than just banning something. And when I heard that, I thought, okay, well, mostly what Bumble does is ban things. They don't have any explanation for how that actually works or how how that's beneficial. So I'm not sure that they're really solving anything. That's Claire
1: Seth who did the story on Bumble. And you can find that story online and also on the Bloomberg Terminal. Interesting. This woman, uh, young, she was a co-founder of Tinder. And here she is uh, behind Bumble. But it's interesting about a company that sets out with a specific mission. Uh, and Claire really digs into, does it? you know, live up to that mission, and does it create what it
0: promised? Well, and this is a story that's ultimately about the culture of the company, sort of the culture of the world we're living in right now as well, even lawmaking to some extent, and how corporate influence can play a role there.
1: So New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy, he's heading into his third year. Uh, He did give his state of the state. I caught up with him, talked about a variety of things that are going on at the state, but we kicked things off with talking about that U.S.-China trade deal. Here's what the governor had to say.
10: Trade impacts us Uh, significantly. Uh, We have one of the biggest ports in the United States. uh, And so for that reason alone, never mind our other goods and services that are made in New Jersey, Um, I I believe uh, at its core, there are legitimate issues with China, period. Um, And and, and that's that's not to me in, in question. What has been in question is how we've gone about that. Um, And and I have not supported the approach to this. I would have signed on the dotted line uh, a, a, a lot of what was negotiated. Assuming labor and consumers were protected, I would have signed what the Obama administration had worked on. But having said all that, lowering the trade temperature, as you suggest, taking another distraction off the table, I think is a good thing. I'm not qualified to tell you that this is a good trade deal. Again, I look at any deal through the eyes of consumers and labor. Uh, But putting aside the specifics, anything that can lower the temperature, I think is good.
1: Governor, talk to us about your kind of what I see is like two objectives with this Jobs uh, Jobs New Jersey plan, uh, an initiative. It is about helping employers access talent. It's also about helping residents that are in New Jersey develop the skills. I hear this across the country that everyone is working on these initiatives. What specifically are you going to do to help New Jersey residents have the skills that they need for the jobs that are in demand?
10: Yeah, you've got it exactly right, first of all. So the, the notion here is this is what employers need for the, the economy of tomorrow. These are the employees that we're producing with the skills they've got. How can we as seamlessly as possible shrink the gap and make it line up as, be- as best we can? You're right. Lots of places are doing this, but no place starts where we start. Number one public education system in America, highest concentration of scientists and engineers per square mile in the entire world, a diversity unlike any other American state. We just got ranked to be the smartest state in the nation. Uh, We start in a very good place. But again, getting that match to work. I can't tell you how many CEOs, board chairs I've sat with who say, listen, we love it. My first question is, where am I going to get the workforce for tomorrow? And just at this, on, the, on the other side of the coin, with recent graduates saying, listen, I feel really good about my education, right. but I want to make sure the skills I've got will get me the job that I want. And so our job is to make that match as best we can.
1: I'm understanding, of course, you guys are gradually raising the minimum wage. Small businesses are t- selling us. That, that is killing them. How do you respond to that? And we know small businesses are always the backbone of uh, really our nation's economy.
10: Yeah. By the way, our administration for the first time, Carol, has a small business unit uh, in our Economic Development Authority. That's never happened before. I think 60 percent of the employment in our state is is technically by small businesses as it relates to minimum wage. uh, One one way we're doing this is we're doing it gradually. Uh, It's a five year glide path to fifteen dollars an hour. Uh, and that's explicitly because of the small business community. Secondly, depending on how small you are, there are carve-outs and the glide path is even longer. Um, I can't justify having a two-income household uh, earning below the poverty line in New Jersey—it's uh, just—it's it, unacceptable. So we had no choice but to go from eight dollars and something. Uh, we're now at eleven dollars, uh, and in, in several years from now, we'll get to fifteen dollars. It's the right thing to do. Right. I think we're doing it in a responsible way particularly with our small businesses. And I hope we can have one of those one plus one equal three outcomes.
1: At the other end of the spectrum, the millionaire's tax. Got to ask you about it. You keep pushing for this millionaire's tax. It was in your state of the state. Um, You know, your fellow Democrats in New Jersey seem to say it's a dead issue. Why do you keep pushing? What chance is there for success here?
10: Yeah, I'd say I just uh, challenge a little bit the basis of the question. My fellow Democrats, uh, a millionaire's tax actually in New Jersey polls in the 70s including a a wild majority of democrats and a majority of republicans believe it or not why do we want to do it Uh, because it's the right thing to do Uh, and we're not begrudging folks who have done well there are 22,000 and something folks in this state out of 9 million who are in this category bless them for their success we take our hat off to them we want more of them that's not the point it's not us versus them we want them to pay a little bit more And the reason we want this is two reasons. Number one, we'll take the proceeds and we'll put it directly into the middle class. Uh, Direct middle class property tax relief and K through 12 education funding. Uh, I inherited a state where the middle class had been ravaged. We're on a two year run now where we are making historic investments. This will allow us to accelerate that. And in particular, property tax is the big tax burden in this state above all else. And that's Phil
0: Murphy, governor of the state of New Jersey, coming off of his state of the state address, talking about your home state, Carol Masser.
1: Right, my great home state of New Jersey. So we did talk about a lot of stuff, trade because it was in the news, wanted to see what the impact was on the state, but also about his mission for the millionaire's tax and so much more. So fun to, to check in with him.
0: He's an interesting politician yeah, to be totally. sure.
1: The opener Pursuits this week, it's about building your own greenhouse. I know, Jason Kelly, you've been thinking about this.
0: I've been thinking so much about it, but what we debated our house is Greenhouse Conservatory. Greenhouse (laughs) Conservatory. (laughs) What
1: to do. What
0: to do. James Tarmy is here with us in New York City. Uh, Didn't see this one coming and yet it's a fascinating tale. Yeah. So this is
11: how people are spending their money. It turns out that very wealthy people in the last 10 years or so, have started spending hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars, on their own private greenhouses in an effort to control where their produce comes from. Is
1: this to grow their own kale? What is it?
11: Well, possibly, yes. Kale, tomatoes, lettuce, peppers, all the stuff that you would just buy at a normal supermarket, people are very aggressively trying to grow on their own. So you end up getting tomatoes that if you actually – amortize the cost of what the the actual greenhouse costs and so forth it costs like $40 a tomato
1: or right.
0: whatever. So yeah. But it's
1: your tomato. But it's your tomato. And, and
11: and let's be honest, by
0: grow their own, it's usually hire someone to grow their own well, right? or
11: try to hire someone. Yeah. To, we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves of course, but the entire issue that many people have run up against is that the person who they call their gardener is who's the person who trims hedges and, you know, transplants things. It's not, in fact, trained in horticulture. Right. They're trained maybe in landscaping, but not horticulture. Exactly. Exactly. And so people are discovering that they build this massive infrastructure and think that they can hire people to actually do what the infrastructure is for, namely grow plants, and end up being in a situation where they literally cannot find anyone to actually enact their their plans. All
1: right. So let's take a few steps back and let's talk about um, what you found out. I mean, it really is kind of going back to what? The UK, right? There's lots of greenhouses. there. Yes, one it's person.
11: It's, it's one person says that greenhouses in the UK are what garages are to the US, in the sense that everyone has them. <laughs> that kind but of felt painful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> not the same. A bit of a a bit of a blow, but. <laughs> Um, You know, anyone can have a greenhouse technically if it's a kind of little glass shack, but really those are oftentimes called cold frame houses um, where it's just sort of to try to protect the plants from the frost. And these can be quite cheap. Once you start getting into an actual greenhouse that's meant to nurture and grow and winter plants all year round, you end up having to control – temperature fluctuations during the day and night you have mechanical systems you have a very very complex series of different machines and various calculations that you have to take into account when you're constructing this ostensibly kind of bucolic little yeah. uh, idyllic structure all right so going back to
0: where we started a little bit There's a greenhouse and then there's a conservatory. A conservatory seems much
11: more relaxing. It is relaxing, but it's also not great for actually growing plants. It's great for keeping plants. Yes. Right? You know, as, as many people know, keeping plants in a glassy place during the summer and winter means that the plants, if you water them, thrive. However... It actually is not the best place to grow plants, first of all, because you need a lot of soil yeah. um, and you need to water them aggressively. But also, plants need very different temperatures oftentimes than um, what you know your fern in your living room needs. Right. And so if you're actually taking this seriously and trying to grow lettuce or whatever, um, you can't really have it attached to your house. You need a standalone space and you need – A lot more serious of an investment, I think, and and maybe plants
0: need a a climate uh, control that's not exactly
11: comfortable for human beings. Right. (laughs) So now, when it comes to cost, then it starts to get incredibly expensive, especially if you want it to look nice. So you know, a lot of these companies have a kind of base model that are of around 300 square feet that starts starts at approximately $50,000 wow. um, and that cost will double when it comes to the mechanical assistance being implemented and everything so at the base amount for a lot of these people they're spending at least $100,000 if not a lot more and going back to what we were initially discussing they spend all this money and then one person told me that these uh, greenhouses end up being uh, very, very expensive storage sheds after a little while <laughs> because they oh, they shit. really can't find anyone to staff it. Right.
1: That's really sad. The point is though also that there are these companies that are doing it and it sounds like they are more in demand, right? That people do want them.
11: These companies have seen their sales at the high end treble and in some cases – you know one company went from around 15 greenhouses annually, uh, priced it above 250,000 dollars, to more than 50. Yeah. Wow, That's on an annual job. basis in 10 years. That is, I think, objectively, an explosion in demand. Sounds like the real business uh, opportunity
0: is in staffing greenhouses uh, at this point. So <laughs> yeah. good uh, luck, yeah. Good luck. good luck following that dream, Yeah, Exactly. Hot, hot
1: house tomatoes, yeah, that exactly. You've been dreaming about.
0: Yeah, I'm, you know. I mean, this has been fun, but you know, maybe I need to go staff some greenhouses. <laughs> it's time to think There's about a your retirement. a market need, exactly. exactly. James <laughs> Tarmy,
11: always great. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.
1: So in pursuits this week, it's not a supercar, it's not a race car, it's not an exotic concept car. It is a station wagon.
0: Or is I... I have learned to call it a Carol car. I love oh, station
1: wagons. Yeah.
0: Hannah Elliott is here. She's telling us about this sleek new Audi that's making station wagons sexy, although apparently to some people they always were.
12: Yeah,
1: always were. So tell us about the car that you wrote. So
12: this is very exciting in the world of station wagons. This is the Audi RS6 Avant, and it has not been sold in the United States until this year, and it's basically a supercar in station wagon form. So, if you love station wagons, this is a very exciting thing. We're finally getting something. Fast, powerful, cool, even. I want to hear about the car. But what is it about? Is it that there are a ton more wagons over in Europe versus here? Yeah, you know, Europeans have this thing where they respect and honor the tradition of the station wagon. Let's not forget, this is the shooting. They call it a shooting break in Europe. And that that comes from the tradition of going out on the hunt. And you take a shooting break and you open the back of your car and it's a nice picnic. You know, you've got that long roof line. So, of course, the, the Europeans get it. We're slowly catching on and the automakers have finally decided to uh, give us what we want.
0: And so how much of this is about just space in the sense that like (laughs) Europeans, they have traditionally like a little less space both in their homes. It's a smaller part of the country. Whereas here in the United States, we're like bigger is better, whether it's a minivan, whether it's an Escalade or a Suburban or whatever. We've gone big and not been as – Economical, I guess, with the way we design cars—is that does that yeah, make sense?
12: Totally. Um, I think the key word here is functionality. Yeah. You get something that is the the height of a car and the width of a car, so it's smaller than an SUV, but it has the functionality of an SUV. Right. So it's maybe the thinking person's SUV. It's practical. You can put, you know, the back door. It probably has. Slightly less space than an SUV, but it's as functional, right. I would say. So we're talking functionality. All right, functional, but yes. you sounded like <laughs> this
1: car from driving it that you liked it. Tell us I where you drove it. it and
12: what the experience was. Okay, so I took this out in the hills in Malibu. And you, you may not think this because there's, there's of course, the highway in Malibu. But if you take a hard right and you go up in the hills, there are some really aggressive turns up there. So I took this uh, Avant up there, and it performed I had just gotten out of the Audi R8 and got into this. Now, the R8's their sports car. Right. It kept right up. It has almost 600 horsepower, which is kind of insane. All-wheel drive, all these crazy drive modes. It was a blast. And it sounds incredible.
1: Well, talk to us a little bit about the growl of the car. You actually have a line in the story. Yeah.
12: This is um, made – (laughs) well, oh, the R-rated line. Yes. Yes. (laughs) It does – it sounds like a sports car. And this engine note was made specially for the American market because Audi knows Americans, again, might be a little hesitant about the station wagon thing. So they made a unique engine note specifically for the American market. It does sound really aggressive.
0: And so where does this fit sort of in the price range? I mean, Audi obviously is, is higher end, but Mercedes, yes. I think, also has oh, a pretty complete, popular station wagon as well. Right? Audi.
12: I'm sorry. Mercedes does make great station wagons. Um, the It makes even AMG station wagons, right. which are, Serious. you know, mid-six or, you know, in the six figures, um Audi tells me that this is going to be roughly hundred and twenty thousand. They haven't come out with official pricing yet. So it's very expensive. Audi does make other less expensive wagons that are around fifty thousand, so it's a big jump. Um, but if you think okay, Porsche makes a Panamera Sport Turismo, which is kind of like a wagon too, right? Again, these are all in the six figures now. These are Primo cars.
1: Right, right. Yeah. So
12: all right, so you liked how it
1: drove. Yeah. Um tell us about the interiors, the okay. exteriors in terms of what yeah. it look like. So
12: my favorite thing about the technology on this car is in the back it has a motion sensor that if you swipe your foot underneath the back it opens the back hatch which I think is so cool. I have to tell Um, you my car has that.
1: Oh, My really? whole family made fun of me. That, no, I, know, that, I, I knew I love you were it. gonna go
12: there. I've, but when your it, hands are full, yes. you just like swipe your foot. completely. It's a great thing. Um, to your point about the interiors, it comes with two <gasps> special interiors: the RS spec interiors. You've got this honeycomb pattern on the seats. It's basically trim like a sports car yeah. with perforated leather. Um, the whole interior is gorgeous and in the Audi tradition.
0: And so what does this tell us about where the market may go from here?
12: It's very interesting. I don't know. The answer is I don't know. I feel like it's a bit of a trial thing. Mm-hmm. We've seen SUVs continue to dominate. There's right. no sign of that changing or slowing down. But this is an interesting option and it is telling that they are bringing it to market now. It's telling that it's not a hybrid. It's it's a full-on right. Right. V8 car. So we'll see.
0: And fuel efficiency, do you get any more? More efficiency here than you would for a big gas-guzzling SUV. Uh,
12: yes, you know I will say this is not the most efficient station right. wagon in the world, but yeah, I mean if you drive this on long um, stretches, you can maybe get twenty miles per gallon okay. or so. So yeah, it's a little better. Yeah. Are you anticipating other folks? Is there anybody else to like bring in a wagon? I don't know. I don't. Yeah. I don't know. I don't think so. Yeah. I, you know, again, this is a really niche yeah. uh, um, audience. We'll see. We'll see. It's kind of new and exciting and hasn't really been done like this before, so we'll see. I'm excited to find out. Chris,
0: Christmas 2020, there could be a bow on this yeah, car outside of the I don't uh, think Masser so. house.
12: <laughs> gotta love <laughs> my wagon though. gotta tell you.
0: <laughs> right, Hannah Elliott, thanks a lot.
12: Thank you guys.
0: And that wraps up Bloomberg Business Week's weekend podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Jason Kelly.
1: And I'm Carol Masser, proud of my station wagon. Be sure to tune into Bloomberg Business Week radio live Monday through Friday, all starts at 2 p.m. Wall Street time.
0: And if you can't catch us live, get our daily podcast wherever you download your podcast.
1: You could also watch the show live on YouTube. Just search for Bloomberg Global News.
0: And get this 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 week's edition of the magazine, it's on newsstands now.
1: We'll be back next week at the same time.
0: This is Bloomberg.